And so, as I said, we're going to be in Psalm 103, and we're going to talk about the topic of the God that we must know. The God that we must know. It seems to me that I am always hearing about things that I must do. Uh, Mostly in the media, commercials, sometimes people give me advice. Advertisers and pundits are notorious for telling people what they must do. And you know, it's, it's really not a surprise. I mean, we're living our lives in a world that is almost entirely given to exaggeration and hyperbole. People, people don't get hungry. They're starving to death. You know, they aren't impressed. They're dazzled and astonished. People don't get upset. They're beside themselves with grief and stricken. People aren't distracted. They're, they're bored to tears. And they aren't shocked. They die. I, I, I literally died. No, you didn't. You didn't die. In fact, one of the ways in our interesting culture that you might suspect that a person is in fact deeply moved by a situation is if they are somewhat restrained in their expression. People get real quiet and you're like, are you upset? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Real indicator that something big has gone wrong. If you look at your life objectively, if you can actually do that, there are not too many things in your life that you actually must do. Not too many. But today I'd like to suggest to you that one of those few things is that you must know God. You must know him. Now, I realize there are a great many people out there that are wholeheartedly disagree with me, and many of them very smart people, whatever that means. They might say, no, I don't have to know God. I want to tell you, I, I understand where you're coming from. Not too many years ago, I would have been one of those people. I don't have to know God. You, you can't make me know God. And I'm not going to know God. And yet, here we are just a few years later. And I'm here to tell you, and hopefully to illustrate today, that in fact, you must, you must know God. Because if you fail to know the only God that can be known, What you know as your life will very shortly not be yours in the same way any longer. And what you know as life will in short order become something else altogether, something other than life. And these circumstances that we must avoid at any cost. And the only way to avoid them is to know the only God who has revealed himself to us. Again, people say, I don't know what you're talking about. God hasn't revealed himself to me. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me, cons- let me suggest that you consider the Bible. God will use a variety of different circumstances to bring people to the Bible. But the bottom line is Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What? God can't just talk to me? Yes, he can. But the problem is really about our ability to hear. It's not about God's ability to communicate. We are 
Um, as a culture, as, as a people, as human beings, we are hard of hearing, especially concerning the Lord. He needs us to get what's in this book. And hopefully we'll shine a little light on that idea today. We're going through uh, the text of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is attributed to King David, which means we believe David wrote it, plain and simple. Now, when somebody who's teaching spiritual formation at your local seminary says it is attributed to King David, it could mean all kinds of things. Uh, They may not even be certain there was a King David. Here's the distinction. We believe the Bible says what it means plainly and simply. People love to complicate things, makes them feel smart. We're not that smart, and it's not that complicated. Having been written by King David would make this psalm somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 years old. Now, there's a miracle. I want you to go out and find another piece of 3,000-year-old literature that is still in distribution like this and relevant to the lives of people. You can't do it. There isn't one. Nowhere. We understand the psalms are songs of worship, and David is the guy when it comes to worship. He not only wrote the Psalms, uh, about 73 of them anyway, he put in order groups of people to serve God in the practice of worship, in, in the place of worship in Jerusalem. And so worship was a big deal to David because I think he understood that it was a big deal to God. And it should be, I mean, if it's a big deal, it should be a big deal to us as well. The Psalms not only elevate us by bringing us actually... They don't bring us, but they give us an opportunity to come into the presence of God, his presence. They also instruct us, revealing God's nature and the situation of our lives. A little bit about human nature. Psalm 103 is uh, divided into 22 verses. And today we're going to look in those 22 verses in six different sections. Verses 1 and 2, the God to whom... All praise belongs. Verses 3 through 8, the God of every good gift. Verses 9 through 13, the God who judges. Verses 14 through 16, the God who knows us. Verses 17 and 18, the God of all mercy. And finally, 19 through 22, the God of all order. I often wonder if it's possible for God to do anything without affecting everything everywhere. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm not smart enough to know. Verses 1 and 2, the God to whom all praise belongs. Psalm 103, verse 1, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. These two verses kind of act as a title, uh, an overview of everything that he's going to cover in this psalm. The word bless here in the Hebrew is the word barak. It can, under certain context, mean to kneel. Not here. Generally, to bless in the Old Testament means to recognize or to endue as having power, virtue, righteousness, Uh, to regard as exalted. When we bless the Lord, we ascribe to him 
characteristics that are rightfully his. <coughs> in as much as we are actually able to do that. Our ability to do that is connected to our view of ourselves and the world around us. If we see things in the world as they truly are, and a lot of people don't, then we will bless the Lord in truth. But what if our perspective of ourself and of the world is kind of tweaked in some way or another? Then there's a problem. Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 34 says, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Your eye is a metaphor there in Luke for your ability to perceive and understand the truth. Psalm 36 verse 9 says of the Lord, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. God gives us the ability. Folks, before you're a believer in Christ, before you have the Spirit, before you have been exposed to the Scripture, your ability to perceive the truth in any kind of a situation is greatly inhibited by the influences of the world. There is a, you know, there is a, a powerful influence, and we'll talk about that a little later in the study, and it's supernatural. The enemy... The prince of the power of the air wants to tweak our understanding so that we are deceived and confused about the things we see. The idea is that our ability to perceive rightly is dependent upon our allowing the Lord to provide direction and understanding. We need to see things as they truly are. And our connection to the Lord is what allows that. Not our connection to people or some organization. It's to His Holy Spirit. By the word of God. People by themselves are susceptible to deception. This is one of the reasons that we are surrounded by so great a number of conspiracy theorists. People believe crazy things. <clears throat> there are a whole bunch of people out there who really believe the world's flat. And they're not just playing games. They really believe the world's flat. And there are a thousand videos on YouTube to prove it. God, help us. There are people out there that believe crazier things than that. Proverbs 18 once says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Bad idea. Seek godly counsel. Proverbs 22.17 says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. Notice that. My knowledge. To knowledge that comes from the Lord. The phrase here in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, shows up in 1 and in 2, both verses, because we are blessing the Lord with or from our soul. Folks, this is not some superficial thing, but from the depth of my heart. When I bless the Lord, I need to put as much of myself into the act as is possible. God's watching. He knows the difference. If you want to talk to people half-heartedly, you want to watch (coughs) TV without paying attention, want to not pay attention to the internet, that's on you. You're probably doing yourself a favor. When you bless the Lord, bless the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Verse 1 says, With all that is within me, bless his holy name. His name, because he is holy, we dare not touch him even with our words. Or at least that's David's idea here. God is transcendent. That's a big word for he is beyond us. And not just a little bit, trust me. God is the creator. He created subatomic particles, quarks, electrons, protons, neutrons, things of which everything is made. Stuff that we cannot even see with all of our amazing, unbelievable technology. We can't see it. He's also the creator of galaxies. Some of them billions of light years away, which also we cannot see. And he, everything in between, and he makes it all work together right now. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says of the Lord, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. That's wild. The first rule of being attached to the Lord is remember who you're talking to. Remember who you're talking to. The apostles asked Jesus to teach them to pray in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy, separate, pure, clean, different than we are. In the last part of verse 2, Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. This encouragement to be mindful of what the Lord's done for us. Trust me, it's not for his benefit. He already knows everything that he has done for us. It's for us. If we fail to remember what God has done for us, we will lose perspective of who we are and why we're here. And people do that all the time. People do that. You see, God invented the idea of worship. And he is its only proper objective. The only thing that we really should worship is God. He is the only thing that's worthy of worship. So that the angels and ourselves could have an opportunity to acknowledge and to understand the truth of who we are and how we fit into his world. And most importantly, of who God is. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the good things done by men. Even the worst men can do a good thing. We live in a world of indescribable beauty. But I need to remember where the goodness and the beauty come from. What is the source of goodness and real beauty? James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so verses 3 through 8, we're going to look at the God of every good gift. It's necessary, if I'm going to see the world and the people here as they truly are, to be mindful of the Lord and of all that He has done, all that He is doing, all that He will do. God is the great initiator. He's the one who sets things into motion even in our lives as individuals. He puts things in motion. He sets the structure for everything else. In verse 3, it says of the Lord, who forgives all your iniquities, 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And so we start out in verse 3 with the eternal significance, the eternal situation. And all the way down towards verse 8, it becomes temporal and even historical in perspective. Verse 3, God who forgives all your iniquities, heals all your diseases. Notice the all there, very important. In in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, is what I think, anyway, the most significant prophecy in all of Scripture. Daniel is praying, he's worshiping, he's offering supplication, confessing his sins and the sins of the people of Israel before the Lord. God sends out the angel Gabriel, who tells Daniel a great many things. But he starts out in Daniel 9.24 with six specific things, and they're all very closely related. Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are determined for your people in the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This is what the Lord does. And all those things are all related to and involved in. He makes an end of to sins. A wonderful and an amazing, almost amazing beyond description idea. Something that on our own we would never imagine. I really think, folks, the only way to truly appreciate the amazingness of what it means to have your sins forgiven, to have your sins stricken from eternity, is to be in the position of a person that is eternally separated from God and under his eternal judgment. That person can tell you what it's worth to have your sins forgiven. Like nobody else ever. You don't know what it's gone, what you've got till it's gone. A person under the judgment of God could tell you the value of having your sins forgiven. Luke 16, 24, in the account of Lazarus and the rich man, the Lazarus Or rather, the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice, the rich man doesn't need an ocean of water or even a gallon of water. One drop of water would for him be an infinite improvement. That's bad. Another way... Another way you might want to gauge the value of an end to sins might be to take a trip through the cancer ward at a local children's hospital and think about what might have never happened. An end of sins. How good it is to have my sins forgiven. Better than I can, better than I can explain. Better than anything in my life. Anything in my life. Better than I can know. For me to have my sins forgiven 
is truly better than I can understand. He mentions the healing of all diseases in the last part of verse 3. Whenever a person is healed from any disease, it is the Lord that does it. Even in the natural function of your body, he made your body to be self-maintaining. And when it works the way it's supposed to, it's the Lord. He does it. Doctors, (coughs) speaking of healing, (laughs) doctors are often wonderful and we are thankful for their work. But a doctor cannot heal you from a disease. They're a great help when, when everything that they do works well. But only God heals. And again, the healing of all diseases, as he states it here, is, is in eternity's view. Being healed of a disease here in this world, I am still going to die at some point in time. Verse 4, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and with tender mercies. And, you know, the idea of being crowned to place on your head, it's a a punctuation to who you are as a person. Look at all the people in this room this morning. Look at everybody. Let me tell you, only the Lord could know the destruction that he has prevented by bringing you people to Jesus Christ. Have you ever been in a situation, had somebody treat you badly and think to yourself, wow, that guy is really lucky I'm a Christian. You know, have you ever done that? I mean, the destruction that God has saved us from. Had I, had I not come to faith in Christ, sincerely, I don't believe that I would have lived to see 25 years. I don't believe I would have lived that long. At the age of 18, I very nearly took my life sitting on the edge of a bed with a 30-30 rifle in my mouth. If we truly knew the destruction that we have been saved from, how thankful we should be. Thankful, Lord, we don't have to know. God doesn't, doesn't show us those things. But instead, verse 4 says, He has crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies. What a beautiful thing. Isaiah 61.3 says to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We are the planting of the Lord. We are his plants growing up to worship him, to raise our our hands in his presence. Verse 5 who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Food is a big deal to us, isn't it? I mean, we've got whole television networks dedicated to food. You know, we spend countless hours considering. And some of you are sitting there right now. You're not listening to me. You're thinking, what do I want for lunch? I don't want that. I don't want that. Oh, yeah. (coughs) We're consumed with food. And such an important part of what we do every day. Imagine what it's like to live in Venezuela where people spend all that time and more energy just to eat anything, something. Most of the world, folks, most of the people in this world, like around 2 billion of them, are people who labor 10, 12, 14 hours a day to provide for their families not quite enough. 
not quite enough. Can't imagine what it's like to see your children without enough to eat. Seriously, can't imagine what that would do to you. David here again is speaking to those that are in the Lord's care, as we are this day. And trust me, the United States and, and the affluent people of this world are, are being blessed. Many of them don't know the Lord, but they're blessed by the Lord. The people of Israel, our team just returned from, the people of Israel are being blessed by the Lord, though they don't know the Lord. Most of the people in the nation Israel are atheists by profession, and that's craziness. But yet God is so gracious and good. You know, God uses deprivation to move the lives of men and women to himself, to bring people to himself. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes they just choose alcohol or drugs or gambling or anything but God. One of the most amazing things in the world is the ability of a person to make the wrong choice, even though they may know that it's the wrong choice. It's about the hardness of man's heart against God. It's God's desire that our youth would be renewed, as he says here, like, like the eagle. The lifespan of an eagle is in the wild about 20, 30 years. In captivity, they can live as many as 50 years. It may be that the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, 31, was thinking about David's words here in Psalm 103. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In Job chapter 33, the man Elihu speaks to Job in Job 33:23. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to show a man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth and he shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. The Lord is our mediator, folks, to deliver us in all these things. Verse 6 says, The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Not only does he execute righteousness, He is that righteousness. In fact, it is one of the names of the Lord. Jeremiah, looking forward to the future promise of Israel, Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. It's uh, Yahweh Tzitkanu, Hebrew word, the Lord our righteousness. And how does he execute this righteousness on our behalf? Because certainly all the people of this world are oppressed. We are all bound into this world of death. You know, it's one of the things about coming to church. I come to, every time I come to this building, some good thing happens to me. Even when people rebuke me, I need it. It's a good thing. God is good. <coughs> but out there, you know, say the the whole intersection of Sierra Madre and Colorado closed off today. There was a hit and run at 2 o'clock in the morning. Some person died out there. This is a terrible... The world is a mess. It is a mess, folks. And Jesus is our refuge. The answer is that God does it in the life of Jesus. His righteousness touches our lives. 
His righteousness is accounted for us, for all that trust in him. Colossians 2.14 says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And it says, he executes justice in verse 6. You know, justice in this world is the rarest of things. It seems like every day I hear the account of some poor person who's been let out of prison after 20 years or 15 or 30 years for some crime that they now recognize, oh, this guy's innocent. And I think, wow. So often you hear the testimony of those men and they have become believers in Christ while they were in custody and they give glory to God as they are released. What a miracle. What a wonder it is. God executes justice. It's rare in this world. When we see it, we thank him. But our hope, honestly, our hope for justice is certain and fixed. And God will execute justice for all. At that moment when it counts most. And if we trust God, if we trust him, we trust his judgment and we trust his timing. Difficult things. Grace is, or rather he talks about from that time the Lord has restrained his anger, especially in Christ. He has saved us. He has brought us. Look at verse 7. He made known to us his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. The Lord's work in freeing the children of Israel from Egypt is, I believe, the most recounted event in all of human history, not to mention in all of the scripture. God's word to Moses is right in the center of his purpose to bless his people in ways that they could never bring about by their own ability. The Lord speaks to Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Even before the time of Moses, the Lord has drawn people to himself and the promise that he would provide atonement for their sins. Book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham took his only son, Isaac, to the mountains of Moriah to offer him as a a burnt offering. And that he believed that the Lord was able to raise Isaac from the dead because God's promise was to Isaac. Genesis 22, verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, uh, the fire is here in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. From that time to this, folks, the Lord has restrained his anger. And especially in Christ, he has revealed his mercy, his mercy, not giving each of us what we deserve and his grace, granting us favor in his sight that we could never earn or 
ever deserve. However, the situation of our world today, if we see it for what it really is, it's very temporary. It's pretty obvious that the world cannot condition continue in the condition that it's in. I mean, any kind of a reasonable appraisal would tell you that the train of this world is going to jump the tracks at some point. And so in verses 9 through 13, we have the God who judges. God has a plan, folks, and it is for the resolution of all these things. In verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Peter says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. God is not going to bring judgment on this world. Oh, yeah? It's about 2,000 years ago now since the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit, rather the Apostle Peter by the Holy Spirit, warned us about these people, these scoffers. People claim, and sometimes pretty persuasively, that the judgment of God is not going to come upon the world. I got to tell you, when I talk to people about the impending judgment upon the world and their responsibility, that there is a reckoning to come upon the world. I don't feel any pressure to convince them. People know. They know that they are responsible to God. People know that there is a reckoning that is going to come. They pretend like they don't. They just slough it off. But they know inside. Whenever you speak to any person about their responsibility and the judgment of God, don't bother to listen to their protests, their scoffing. Remember, the words of of truth spoken in love have a weight. The Lord will see to that. The Lord's, Lord's the one that gives power to the words of truth that we speak. It's not us. It's not our intellectual arguments or our ability. Let God do it. He does a much better job than we do. Verse 9 says, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. And this for us, as those who are in the care of the Lord, this is a really good thing. The terrible warfare that we suffer. And I know some of you here today are just struggling. You just dragged yourself in here, barely, because you are struggling. It is a terrible warfare, and it is soon to pass. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And even here in verse 10, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Now, some people might argue that point. 
Let me suggest that any consequences that you have suffered because of your failure or your mistakes are corrective. They are corrective from God's perspective. Remember, God's judgment is eternal. Even if I should lose my life because of my own foolish conduct, God has allowed me the opportunity to repent and to seek his mercy. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hold on to that. That's the truth. There are also a large group of believers that are in the middle of some kind of terrible battle, and they are constantly asking the Lord, what did I do? Why did I des- Why are you allowing this? <coughs> they can't help but think that they must have done something to deserve this situation. Folks, think just for a minute, okay? Is the Lord a good father? Is God a good father? And he is. He's the best. Every idea that we have of goodness and love comes from his nature. God would never bring correction or punishment upon your life without making the cause of that trial imminently plain, extremely plain. Remember, you live in a twisted world where bad things happen to good people every single day. It's the world we live in. It's a mess. But we have a refuge. In verse 11, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. How high is the heaven above the earth? Yeah, forever. It never stops. Hey, do you ever go in the ocean? You're out in the ocean by a boat or something and you think about how deep it is and what might be down there and it kind of creeps you out, you know? And so you want to get in the boat really quick, you know? Because, I mean, it's, I mean, there's miles, miles of water down there. If we were really logical, we'd feel the same way. Every time we go outside, we should freak out. Oh my gosh, forever. It never stops. <laughs> Excuse me. How far does he remove our sins from us? How great is the mercy of the Lord? It's without an end. Verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, this is a little curious. 3,000 years ago, and the Lord is able to give David such a sophisticated understanding of the world's situation. If he had said, as far as the north is from the south, that would be, well, from here in Pasadena, 3,863 miles. That's how far north you can go until you start going south. Now, I don't know about you, 3,863 miles. My sins need to be farther from me than that. You know, maybe that would be good with you, but not for me. I need my sins to be a lot farther away. However, you can go east forever. And you will never, ever be going west. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. And will subdue our iniquities. Notice, I love that picture. He will subdue. And how did he subdue your iniquities? On the cross of Christ, didn't he? He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depth 
of the sea. And why does he do this for you? Why does God do this for you? Verse 13 says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Do you ever watch somebody trying to teach their, their 18-month-old how to walk? You know? Just stand and try, don't be afraid they're going to fall down, hurt themselves, and they, they stumble. When, when they fall down, do they smack them? Stop that! Don't fall. No, no! He's right there to brush them off and help them up. Come on, you can do it! As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Psalm 147, 11, one of my favorite verses. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Who hopes in God's mercy? Who fears God? People who mess up. And God takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy. In verses 14, 15, and 16, the God who knows us. You know, we may from time to time actually, unfortunately, forget who we are. Actually, we're kind of prone to get stuck on ideas about ourselves that may be a little bit detached from reality. Go look at the way people dress at the mall. Detached from reality. Like the man in James chapter 1, verse 23, the guy who's a hearer of the word, but he observes himself in a mirror and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Fortunately, God does not forget who we are. For he knows our frame, in verse 14. He remembers that we are but dust. As a man, for as a man his days are like the grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. It's beautiful, flowers in the field. And the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. We have this tendency to get so completely consumed with our lives here in this world. And it's understandable. <clears throat> There's a lot to do and we're busy and we have responsibilities and we love people. We care for them. We do all these things. God knows that this is only the very smallest part of what your life is truly about. It really is. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. What a lot of trouble we cause for just so much dust. This is, the, this is, of course, a reference to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Hebrew word for frame here, frame to uh, create a structure, but also I think it kind of leans in the direction of God understands our limitations there's so many important things about our situation of life that we don't understand completely. In Genesis chapter 2, God speaks to Adam. Uh, Genesis 2.16, Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's fine. But Adam had never seen anything die. Adam, I'm sure, I imagine he understood the concept, but he was not familiar with it in a practical way. And that's not quite the same, is it? What he had to do is he had to trust God. Jesus in Matthew 10 tells us 
Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But I have never seen hell. I've never, and I have no intention of ever seeing hell, frankly. I must trust the word of God, especially in the absence of my own experience. My life here is so brief, folks. I don't have time to learn everything by experience. I have to trust God. Verse 15, as a man, for the days of his life are like grass, as the flower of the field, he flourishes. You know, people can be beautiful. I mean, I mean, really beautiful. As a man, especially, I think women can be beautiful. But there are some really nice-looking guys out there. There's some, like, wow, look at that guy. Man, you know, and I'm not attracted to men at all, never have been. But I just think, wow, that is nice, you know. It's interesting. Women are not moved by what they see the way men are. Men are just, and when I say, I mean moved. Men see things, they're like, they... I have watched young men meet women and forget their names. What's your name? Um, uh, Excuse me, I just got to go away somewhere. They're just, they're lost. Women are not moved in the same way by things that they see. They're beautiful people. But you would never know it to see us age. I mean, some people age well. Some people do. I don't want to mention any names, Robert Luna. But... But I mean, some people age really well, but there are other people. I painted, I used to be a painter. I was painting a house for this, you know, and there was this elderly lady and she was her house and we're going through and there was this like modeling headshot photo. And I was like, wow, who's that? They said, oh, that's the, I'm like, no, no way. Oh my goodness. I know that people are going to look at pictures of me when I was 20 and think, well, who's that? I, I, know. I thought I would never wear glasses. And that, of course, is many years ago now. Wild. Verse 16. It all happens so fast. The wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? There are only eight of them. Do you know their names? Do you know the names of any of them? The wind passes over and it is gone and remembers its place no more. If you remember, if you know those people's names, you're the exception. And the faster it goes, the more we realize how desperately we need God's mercy. Verse 17 and 18, the God of all mercy, no limitation to his mercy to his children. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. David returns again here to God's mercy. David, I think, was a very great man, honestly. He was, he was called by Samuel a man after God's own heart, not a, not a small thing. One of the things that made David a great man was that he understood how he needed God's mercy in his life. And when we do understand that, it becomes a motivating force for us. Verse 17, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. His righteousness to children's children. Again, 
and the defining factor to those who keep his covenant, to those who remember his commandments. It's interesting that through the scripture, God's righteousness is pictured as something that he shares and imparts to those he trusts in. Back in Genesis 15, 6, God speaks to Abraham or of Abraham. He believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He didn't do it. He wasn't that righteous. It was accounted to him for righteousness. The Lord wants us to be righteous. He wants us to do the right thing, to be holy. He wants us to remember the commandments so that we do them. But just as Jesus tells the disciples, Matthew 5, 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the only way for that to happen would be for me to put my hope in the righteous life of Christ. Paul talks about his coming to Christ in Philippians 3, 7. What things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. God knew this was the only way that we could ever be a part of his kingdom. And the rest of the world, folks, they're all out there, all the religions of the world working to establish and build up their own righteousness. It's like trying to lift yourself off the ground by pulling your hair. It's not going to work. It will never happen. Think of it like math. How many individual numbers do you have to put together to reach infinity? Never happen. You can't, there are not enough numbers. God is infinite, and any time he chooses, he can reach out of eternity and reach us. But on our own, no matter how we will try, we will never be enough. Thank the Lord he made a way. He's placed this opportunity into our world that you and I can belong to him. And it works because of the order that he built into our world. Verses 19 through 22, the God of all order. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his word, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The order that the Lord builds into his creation starts at the top with his throne. Unfortunately, we do not see that same order that we would like to here in this world. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. And you see it all around you, everywhere. The ground opens up in Hawaii and, and fire flies out. The whole thing's a mess. It's coming apart. And in many other ways, and in the lives of people 
but are frustrated and overwhelmed and they don't have the tools they need to put it together to figure out, you know, what is the purpose of this life I've got? It groans and labors with birth pangs until now. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us, 4.18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, eyes of faith, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here in verse 20, bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. I love that. I want to hear angels worship. Would you like that? Would you like to hear that? Do you think that might be something? I think if you could actually hear angels worship, it might just change your life forever in one moment. Remember the word angels also means messengers in the New Testament, in Hebrew and in Greek and in the the Old Testament. And that could apply to a person that is serving at the pleasure of the Lord. He makes three points. They excel in strength. They do his word and they listen to the voice of his word. They hear the word of God and they do what it says. And then to the Lord's army in verse 21, bless the Lord, all you his host. The host is a military term. You ministers of his who do his pleasure. David was a military guy. He led the armies out. He led them in. Servants of the Lord in what they do. They do his pleasure. Which is actually, folks, what we were created for from the beginning. Revelation 4.11 in the King James Version says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and for your pleasure they exist and are created. Folks, when I do what pleases the Lord... I do what is best for his people. When I do the right thing, I do what's best for God's people. I do what's best even for people who don't know the Lord when I do his pleasure. And when I do what pleases the Lord, I do what's best for myself and for the people I love. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So not only... Even inanimate objects, rocks, mountains, hills, clouds, trees. Bless the Lord. All his works in all places of authority, which would be everywhere of his dominion. So either we are his messengers sent to do his word, to do his pleasure, or his army in his service, or we are attached to his works. Either way, our soul needs to bless and to follow the Lord. Today, You live in what we might describe as kind of a no man's land. A place where the prince of the power of the air can put a veil over the eyes of men who reject the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The Lord has, the Lord is currently, and the Lord will eternally set the creation in order, and you get to see it. You're going to see it happen. So should we lend ourselves to his purpose and encourage others to do the same. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as we see the day approaching. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You have breath, you praise the Lord. Every day, praise the Lord. God to whom all praise belongs, the God of every good gift, the God who judges, the God who knows us, the God of all mercy, the God of all order. It's interesting, you know, in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah is talking about the creation, the new heavens and the new earth where people will live and the new covenant that God will bring. He says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Notice that he doesn't say, No more will every man tell his neighbor, Do the right thing. Hey, keep the law. Hey, do, you know, do your commandments. Your sp- he, what does he say? Know the Lord. That's the point. You know the Lord. Everything else will follow. All you have to do is know the Lord. To fail to know the only God that can be known is not for any person a real option. He is the God that you must know. And maybe while you're at it, you have the opportunity to introduce him to a few other people. 